You're listening to a message from Christ's Covenant Church, where we are growing together in Christ as a caring community of disciple-makers. Thank you for listening, and please feel free to share this with others who may find it helpful. Open up your Bible, if you have one, to the book of John, chapter 19. We're going to look at just a few verses today, John 19, 28 through 30. Uh, but I wanted to mention why we had that video that we shared uh, where we had Virginia share about her job and what she does. We are up to the point in the story of Jesus' life where we are actually to the point of his death. Uh, this appears in all four of the Gospels uh, after Jesus has been arrested and, and crucified. We come ultimately to the, the core of their story to the point where he dies. And that's what we're going to come across today. Uh, but we wanted Virginia to be able to share because we've heard such encouraging things from her and about her, about how she cares well for those who are dying because death is inevitable for us. It's something that every one of us will face uh, and we can pretend as if we won't, but we are grateful for people who care for those who are hurting and uh, who can do so uniquely as Christians uh, with holding out hope for them, having compassion upon them. Uh, but I have felt this week as I've approached this text, even though it's short, I have felt it to be a daunting task. Uh, not just because I'm trying to do it a little shorter for the sake of our kids, but because of the subject matter of it, because it does talk about the death of Jesus. And we're going to talk, and I'll do it in a way that is not morbid or or hopefully fear-inducing for children or for adults, but we are going to talk about death today because it's at the core of the Christian message. It's in our story uh, from the book of John today. But there's a quote as I've thought about preaching that has come into my mind and heart many times over the years uh, that I've had the privilege to do this. It's a quote from Richard Baxter. He was a Puritan pastor. And talking about preaching in poetic form, he said, I preached as never sure to preach again and as a dying man to dying men. And what he was trying to say, I have felt this week uh, because of the subject matter of this, is that he was trying to convey that there's limits to each of us as human beings, whether we're preachers in a pulpit or in the marketplace in our homes who are preaching the gospel to people. There's going to come a time where we're laid in a grave and we don't have an opportunity again to do it. And so there should be an urgency in how we share the good news of Jesus. But there also should be an urgency in how we hear it because Because we've heard it once doesn't mean we'll get to hear it again and again and again and again. But as hearers of the good news, whether it's in a church building or in a home or in a neighborhood or marketplace, we need to be people who uh, consider it, who weigh it, who decide to trust in Christ now and who don't bank on days to come. And so I felt the weight of that statement today uh, as I come to preach to you, knowing that I'm a dying man, that each of us are dying men or women, uh, and want to preach uh, the death and the resurrection of Jesus in a way uh, that conveys my urgency in my heart, but I would encourage you to listen to it in that way as well. We're up to the, the point in the story of the Gospel of John. We've been going through it for numerous months. We're getting closer to the end. We couldn't quite time it exactly right with Easter Sunday coming up. We tried, but uh, we're, we're a little bit early on this of uh, the story of Jesus' death and resurrection. But we're going to look at just a few short verses, John 19, 28 to 30. And I'm going to read this text, and I know we have some extra kids in here today. We're going to put the verses up on the screen, or if you have your own Bible, you can look at it as well. Or if you don't know how to read yet, that's fine too. You can listen as I read it. But I want each of you who are kids or grown-ups to 
See, listen for a word that is repeated twice. It's a really important word. It comes kind of near the beginning of these verses and then near the end of these verses. Uh, But it's a word that is going to be in here twice. That's going to be what we talk about today. And so I'm going to read this passage, and you can follow along on the screen or in your Bible, or you can just listen in. But listen for that word that is repeated. After this, Jesus, knowing that all was now finished, said, to fulfill the scripture, I thirst. A jar full of sour wine stood there, so they put a sponge full of the sour wine on a hyssop branch and held it to his mouth. When Jesus had received the sour wine, he said, It is finished. And he bowed his head and gave up his spirit. This is the word of God. There may be some other words that were repeated twice in there, but did you hear the word that was repeated? It's near the beginning and at the end. It's the word finished. I hope that's the one that many of you at least noted. Uh, We hear here in the story of John as he's recording there, someone who was there and saw this happen, he records for us that Jesus in his mind and heart knew that it was finished. And then he, he asked for a drink, but then at the end as he's about to give up his spirit, about to actually experience death, he actually says for us to know. And for those who are around, he says, it is finished. So people wouldn't just think it in their hearts, but he wants to profess it with his mouth that it is finished. But the, the question I would have for us, and that we're going to think about today, is what is it? That's a famous phrase in the Bible, it is finished. But what is it? What, what is Jesus talking about? What did he know was finished? What was he trying to tell people there around the cross was finished? What would he want to tell us today is actually finished? That's an important question. And if you hear me preach regularly, you know that I quote Charles Spurgeon often. Charles Spurgeon about this very word, it, said this. He said, this, it is the biggest it that ever was. Turn it over and you will see that it will grow and grow and grow and grow till it fills the whole earth. It is finished. And so what we're going to do today, I want to share four things, and I'll do it briefly, but four things that I think Jesus was saying were finished. Things he was wanting the people there to know and would want us to know was finished as he came to die upon the cross. And then at the end, we're going to see two ways that should impact us. The fact that these things are finished. How should that land on us? How should that impact us, whether we're 5 or 15 or 35 or 75 How should that affect us? And so we're going to look for four ways that something was finished. What is Jesus talking about when he says it is finished? And the first thing we're going to see in this text, and this we'll probably spend the least bit of time on, would be this, that prophecies have been fulfilled now. All the prophecies about Jesus' life at this point, as he comes to the point of death, have now been fulfilled. Uh, John starts this little section of his story by saying, After this, Jesus, he says then, knowing that all was now finished, said to fulfill the scripture, I thirst. And so even in the mind of Jesus, that he knew that there had been all these things written in scripture, all these predictions and pictures of him and what he was going to be like, what was going to happen to him in his life. He had known all of these things were going to happen, and many of them had already come true. I'll mention some of them in a minute. But one that he knew had not yet come true was tucked away in the book of Psalms, in Psalm chapter 69, verse 21. In Psalm 69, verse 21, the King David, who many times his life kind of was a picture of what was going to happen to Jesus and the things he would say about himself 
ultimately came true in the life of Jesus, he had written this. He said, long before Jesus came, he said, they gave me poison for food, and for my thirst, they gave me sour wine to drink. And so when Jesus is there on the cross, having suffered immense pain and suffering and torture for hours now, and he comes to the end of his life, he is unspeakably thirsty. I cannot even imagine what that would have been like. But this wasn't just some like delirious comment he was making as he was coming up to the point of death. Even up to the point of death, he was fully coherent. He wasn't slipping into delusions or anything like that. But he remembered this prophecy that, that his enemies would, would give him sour wine to drink as he suffered. And so he says, I thirst. And they and naturally, they, they respond and they take this jar. We don't know exactly why it would have been there, but probably of what we would call something similar to vinegar that would have been nearby. And they take whatever the ancient version of a sponge, probably a naturally occurring thing would have been and dip it in that and hold it up to Jesus for him to drink. And Psalm 69, 21 is fulfilled then. This prophecy, one last prophecy about the life of Jesus, one more thing that had been predicted about him, now comes true as he comes to the point of death. And so Jesus drinks when whatever, I don't know what that looked like, but he drinks some from that sponge or this sour wine, this vinegar, he drinks it. But this was just one among many prophecies, many predictions and things that the writers of the scripture had said would happen to Jesus. It just happens to be the last one before he died. But kids, you probably even know some of these, these predictions. We talk about them at Christmas time a lot. These things that have been written in the Old Testament about what Jesus was going to be like. There have been prophecies and these predictions about what family he would come from, right? You don't get to pick that, who your parents are. Uh, but there have been predictions about what family he would come through. There have been uh, predictions and prophecies about how he would even be conceived. How, how he would be born, where he would be born. That had been predicted and came true. There have been predictions and these prophecies about, not predictions, that's not the right word, as if it's a guess. There were these statements about his life, that he was going to be sinless. That he was going to live perfectly, and he fulfilled that. There was these prophecies, these things that were stated about how he'd be betrayed by his friend. How he'd be sold for money. The nature even in which he would be dying. The way that he would be crucified. There were all these predictions, all these prophecies about how he was going to live and how he was going to die. And now, as he comes to the point of death, they have all come true. Every single one. All of these prophecies, they are now finished. And though there's other prophecies to come, we'll read even next week. There's more prophecies about how his body will be handled after he dies. More prophecies about how he'll raise from the dead. There's more prophecies to come. But the prophecies about his life are now complete. They've all been fulfilled. All of these prophecies, down to even these small prophecies about sour wine being given him to drink. And so that's one thing that, that we know is finished now as Jesus comes to the point of death is that all these prophecies have been fulfilled. But if we turn it over, like Charles Spurgeon said, and look at that word it from a different perspective, we'll see a few more things that were completed, that were finished at this point in time. The next one I would say is that the obedience of Jesus was now completed. The obedience of Jesus, a lifetime of obedience from Jesus was now completed. When Jesus says it is finished, I think that's part of what he has in mind. We often talk about Jesus as if all he came to do for us, and I say that all, even though it's an enormous all, all he came to do for us was to die for us. 
to be a sacrifice for our sins. And that is, we'll see that in just a moment, that is a huge part of what he came to do. But part of what he came to do was also to obey for us. To actually live a life from infancy through adulthood where he obeyed and obeyed and obeyed and obeyed where we sin and sin and sin and sin. He came to obey for us. And as he's coming to the end of his life, he can say, it is finished, meaning I have now obeyed for an entire lifetime. With no failures on my record, no sin on my record, I have obeyed. Back earlier in this very chapter, back in John 19, verses 4 and in verse 6, Pontius Pilate, this man who was responsible ultimately for crucifying Jesus, do you remember this if you were here the last few weeks? He had said, I find no guilt in him. Talking about Jesus. And that was truer than Pilate knew. He was just saying that there was no accusations in their law to kill Jesus. But he is saying something that, that is truer than he knew. God the Father could look at the life of Jesus, having known not just how he appeared outwardly, but knowing his minds and his thoughts, knowing his emotions, knowing the attitudes of his heart. God the Father could look at his son Jesus, and here, as he's on the cross, he could look at him and say, I find no guilt in him. I want you to think about how impressive that is. Like even little kids, I want you to think about how impressive it is that Jesus lived from being a baby all the way to someone who was almost my age and had never sinned. He had obeyed and obeyed and obeyed. Jesus obeyed God the Father when he was a toddler. When the rest of us are learning to throw tantrums and learning to say no to our moms and dads, Jesus obeyed God the Father as a toddler. And Jesus obeyed God the Father as a child, didn't he? We don't have all the full records of this, but we know it's true. That he obeyed God the Father as a child when we're starting to use our little minds that are developing to know how to lie. To know how to deceive people. To know how to take stuff from people. When we're starting to learn to use our minds and bodies that way, Jesus was obeying perfectly. Jesus obeyed God the Father as a teenager. He obeyed God the Father at a time of life where we start to indulge in various forms of lust and start to use our creativity and let our hearts just run after things and give ourselves over to these things. Jesus did not. He obeyed God the Father perfectly as a teenager. Jesus obeyed God the Father as a young man. At a time of life where many of us may be running for the things of this world after wealth and fame and notoriety, Jesus was obeying God the Father perfectly as a young man. And even now, as he's upon the cross, as a fully mature man, he is obeying God the Father. At a time of life where many of us may be tempted to start to slip into hypocrisy or we may be jealous of what other people have been given by God, we have all these sins that come up in that stage of life. Jesus is obeying God the Father, and he did it perfectly. When he says it is finished, his obedience is now complete. His lifetime of obeying God the Father is complete. And if, if, that, if that life wasn't impressive enough, think about what had happened the last couple hours right before he says this. Right before he says, it's finished, I've obeyed. These last few hours, I cannot even fathom the weight of temptation he would have felt to say, I am not going to the cross. Like, I do not deserve this. I, I did nothing wrong towards these people or to God the Father. I will not do this. And the temptations that must have loomed in his heart to just to go away from this. But he prayed, literally, not my will, God, but yours. And he obeyed through crucifixion. 
He obeyed as it became hard for him to breathe upon the cross. At great loss to himself, he obeyed God the Father. And so his obedience is complete. I was trying to think of a, a way to, to share how, why this is important for us. And the best I could come up with, thinking of kids that may be in the room, is I was thinking back to my school days. And I think I've said this before in here, but I hated doing group projects. Uh, I, I did not like doing them. But I want you to imagine, especially if you're old enough to be in school or you can remember back to these, when you had a group project in school. And I, some of you, this may be hard to imagine. Some of it may be very easy to imagine. But I want you to imagine yourself as a part of that group where you are a lazy student, where you don't want to do the project, you don't like the teacher, you don't like the assignment, you hate the subject matter, you don't want to do this, and you tell your other partner in your group that you don't want to do it. You're not going to do the work. I am not going to do this. I'm not going to read the book. I'm not going to get the presentation ready. I'm not doing it. But there's the, the one student in your group who is responsible and, and is willing to do it. And even though you're saying, I will not do that, I, I don't want anything to do with this, they go ahead and they trudge through the work of doing it. They even do the stuff you were supposed to do uh, for the assignment, and ultimately they turn it into the teacher. They do the presentation. They do whatever is needed, and they rock it. Like they, they get an A-plus on that assignment. And that teacher, because they're grading you as a group, counts that grade to you. As someone who did nothing, as someone who actually did less than nothing, who probably frustrated the one who was doing the work, but you still get the A+, counted to you. That is like a small picture, and there's holes in it, but that's a small picture of what's happened with us and Jesus like, we have failed our teacher. We have failed our creator and said, I don't want to obey what he tells me to obey. But Jesus perfectly obeyed. He obeyed and obeyed and obeyed. And now he invites us to be united with him and says, the reward I got for what I did, I will share with you. Even though you've done nothing, even though you've done less than nothing, I'll share my reward with you. That is why it's important that it is complete. It's finished. The full obedience of Jesus as he comes to the point of death is finished. So his obedience is completed. But as we turn that word it over again, there's some more things that we can see. When Jesus says, it is finished, what is he talking about? So prophecies have been fulfilled now. His obedience was complete. I think the thing that naturally comes to mind that we say is finished is that Jesus' suffering is now finished. As he comes up to the point of death, as he gives up his spirit, John says, I think one of the things Jesus was clearly communicating when he said, it is finished, was that his suffering was now finished. That, that the fullness of the suffering that he was sent to take for us was now complete. Jesus was suffering physically upon the cross. There is no question about that. I cannot even fathom the physical suffering that he was going through upon the cross. Pastor Larry shared some of that last week with us. It is hard even to listen to, hard to imagine our Lord suffering like that, him suffering physically. But what I don't want us to forget, or or want us to maybe hear for the first time, is that there was something deeper going on at the cross than just nails in his hands. And just nails in his feet. And just thorns in the sides of his temples. There was an unseen world where suffering far surpassing that was going on. Where God God the Father was punishing Jesus for our sins. Where God the Father was looking at his son and he was counting our sins to him. 
and he was punishing him um, in layers and ways beyond just what was seen, beyond what was physical. He was punishing Jesus even to greater degree because Jesus was suffering as a substitute for us. Jesus was suffering in our place when he was upon the cross. And as weird as this may sound, I want to clarify this and hear me. We don't, when we think about our relationship with God, it's not as if we deserve crucifixion specifically. Right? Like, it's not that because of my sins I deserve to be crucified. It's because of my sins I deserve to be punished by God the Father. I deserve to have his anger on me. I deserve to have his wrath on me. That's what I deserve. And unless I have someone take that in my place, it's going to come to me. And so when Jesus was suffering on the cross, yes, he was suffering the agonies of, of his physical body suffering. But he was suffering on the cross, taking the anger and the wrath of God for my sins. That's what was weighing most heavily upon him, was the anger and the judgment of God that was being placed upon him. In 1 Peter 2, Peter said that Jesus himself bore our sins in his body on the tree. Talking about the cross. So he had taken our sins upon himself on the cross, but God the Father is punishing him on the cross for our sins. And in the span of just a few hours, this is mind-boggling to think about, but in the span of just a few hours, Jesus was suffering what we should have suffered for eternity. Every bit of it. Like not a drop left of it. He was suffering in those couple hours what we should have suffered eternally for our sins. He was being punished instead of us. And I want to know when Jesus says it is finished or it is completed, that should speak volumes to us that he took the full weight of it. That he took all of it. That, That there was not a bit of God's anger left that was left in some cup for us to drink later. Jesus took every bit of it. It is complete. It is finished. There is not a drop left. I, I, we have to give our kids medicine sometime, and sometimes I remember these days. But do you guys know the little almost like shot glasses of medicine sometimes that you have to take? And you know how medicine is often really, really thick? and kind of sticks to the side of that thing. And no matter how many times you tip it back, there's always that little bit left in there that you just cannot actually get out. If it's a bad medicine, you don't mind that. If it's a good medicine, you kind of wish you could have the rest. But I was thinking that image was stuck in my head that because Jesus talked about him suffering for us as drinking a cup. It's him drinking this cup of God's anger and God's wrath instead of us. And I think sometimes we imagine that Jesus drank most of it Like, Jesus drank pretty much all of it, but there's just a little bit left of God's anger. There has to be. Like, I'm so bad. I'm so sinful. There has to be a little bit left that he's going to leave for me to drink. But Jesus would want you to know there is not a drop left. Like, he drank all of it. Like, every bit of it that should be made for you to drink, he drank it all. And that cup is clear and empty because he drank it for you. And there is no judgment left from God because it is finished. His suffering was complete. This is important for us to remember. We just sang a few minutes ago. I wrote it in crayon on my paper because that's all I had to write with. I wanted to remember to say this. We, we, we sang this a few minutes ago. My sin, oh, the bliss of this glorious thought. And you just sang this. My sin, not in part, but the whole, is nailed to the cross and I bear it no more. 
Amen? Like every bit of my sin, if I'm trusting in Jesus, was put on him, and every bit of God's judgment for those sins was put on Christ. And in the span of a few hours, it was finished. It was dealt with once and for all. And so his suffering was finished. The fourth thing I want us to see that was finished, before we look at its implications more for us, as we turn that phrase it over one more time to see what else was finished, is that, and this is the most obvious one, is that his life was finished. His life was ended. John, in this text, records for us that after they took the, the hyssop branch and held that vinegar to his mouth and Jesus drank it, that Jesus says, it is finished. Then it says, he bowed his head and gave up his spirit. It seems that Jesus up to this point in time has shown remarkable strength and composure. That it's just now at the end of his life that he bows his head. But it, it seems based on what John's communicating that he had held his head upright. He had been strong. He had, he had endured the suffering of the physicalities of the cross but also of the judgment of God. But now as time came for him to die, he bows his head. And I love how John says he gave up his spirit. It's, that's an active thing. He gave up his spirit. It's a reminder to us that Jesus was laying his life down. It wasn't being taken from him. He was laying his life down. He was giving his life up for us. There's a, a poem I came across this week that I thought uh, succinctly said this well. It said that all that incarnate God could bear was strength enough but none to spare. So Jesus, as the incarnate God, had had strength to bear this wrath of his heavenly Father, to take that punishment. But now, at the end of it, he has no strength left. He's bowing his head, and he gives up his spirit. Death has always been part of the the punishment that God had laid down for sinners like us. It it appears very early on in the Bible story. Uh, It has always been part of God's punishment. And now, in this part of the story, the true story of Jesus' life, the one human being who never sinned, he's entering into death. I want us to think, so all these things that are finished now, the prophecies are now complete. His obedience is complete. His suffering is complete. His life is now complete. His life is now finished. I want us to connect this in our time that remains with our lives, with our stories. What difference does this make that Jesus died on a cross, that all these things were finished? What difference does that make for me? Because Jesus, in our text today, he started knowing in his head that it was finished. And that motivated him now, hey, all of this has been completed. I can die. All the judgment has been placed on me. I can die now. I've secured salvation for those who will trust in me. But he, he took time as he died, and John heard him say this. He took time to actually say it. Say, it is finished. Because he wants us to know it. He wants us to know that these things are complete, that they are dealt with, that there's, that there's not anything remaining in that cup for us to drink. And I, I would say the effect that I think this should have, this text and the death of Jesus and the things that are finished, the effect that they should have on our soul, I'm going to say in two quick ways. One is that we should not forget death. The second is going to be that we should not fear death. That we should not forget death, but we should not fear death either. And thinking about not forgetting death, we are insulated from death in today's world. 
in many ways. Unless we're an anomaly like Virginia who, who works with folks who are dying, especially the younger that we are, we are insulated from death in today's world. We have modern medicine, which is a wonderful gift from God. We have longer life expectancies than we've had in a long time as a human race. We, we often, as young people, don't live around older people who are, are suffering or who are passing on. We, we, uh, we, when people get sick, we send them to hospitals or to, to nursing homes as they get older and, in, uh, and feeble. We, we bury people in cemeteries. We have funeral homes now. Instead of doing wakes and services in our homes, we have funeral homes. We're insulated from death. But death, even if we insulate ourselves from it, it is still our great enemy as human beings. We, can't, we can pretend it's not, but it is. Like we, we can avoid it. We cannot look at it, but it is still there. We are all mortal. Like me, you, everyone in this room, you are immortal. There's a quote from a book that I've read recently that uh, has made me have some contemplations about death. It's a book called Remember Death by a man named Matthew McCullough. And there's a, a quote here that, that just lodged in my mind from that book. He said, so long as death remains someone else's problem, Jesus will remain someone else's savior. And what he was trying to say is if we pretend that death is not coming to me, not a big deal to me, Jesus is not going to be a big deal to me. But if, if I realize I am heading towards death, as haunting as that may feel, which we'll talk about that in a moment, I have a Savior who has come and died for me and been raised for me. But if I pretend that I, I'm not dying, that, that death's not coming for me, then the Savior loses his significance, loses his power, loses his importance in my life. We need to not forget death. I would say this because there's kids in the room. We need to also, if we're parents or grandparents, not shield our kids from death. This is a big temptation for us. Nor do we need to be morbid and and talk about it all the time, but we need to be careful to not shield our kids, our grandkids, from death. There's a quote from J.C. Ryle from a, a book he wrote called Duties of Parents that I wanted to share with you said this, to pet and pamper and indulge your child as if this world was all he had to look to, and this life the only season for happiness. To do this is not true love, but cruelty. It's treating him like some beast of the earth, which has but one world to look to and nothing after death. It is hiding from him that grand truth, which he ought to be made to learn from his very infancy, that the chief end of his life is the salvation of his soul. I thought that was well said, that, that we need to teach our kids that they are mortals. We need to, when there are funerals that we get invited to, take them with you. Like, don't shield them from death. They need to know from a young age, again, not in a morbid way or a, a fear-inducing way, but they need to know that they're immortal just like you are. But they, that will point them then to their need for a Savior, their need for hope and deliverance on the other side of death. But if they forget that they're going to die, then Jesus is not going to be significant to them. Think about how our kids often face or experience death. It's in the, I was thinking about this. It's in the context maybe of fictional stories or movies where they know very clearly that's a fictional person that I see them die. It's, it feels not real to me. Or if they get into an age and we, we let them play video games, they may experience a death in a video game, but they can just respawn right there where they died, as if it's like magic. And, and death can lose its significance. We, we think about death sometimes only at Halloween, 
and morbid de- thoughts about death, or sometimes we just let our kids' minds run wild in their own mind about what death is and isn't, and they can be panicked and fearful. We need to be the ones who are teaching them about death, the ones who are teaching them that it is coming for us, but that teach them that we have hope because of Christ. So we need to not shield them from it. Remembering death can have a, a sobering and a good effect on us. Psalm 90 verse 12 says, Teach us to number our days that we may get a heart of wisdom. We, whether we're a young kid or an aging adult, we need to remember that our days are numbered and have a heart of wisdom to use the days God has remaining for me in a wise way. Remembering our mortality will give us a sense of urgency with the people that we're caring for, the people that we're taking the good news to. But Jesus would want us to know he would not want us to fear death. He doesn't want us to forget death and pretend as if it's not coming. But as human beings, when we do start to think about death, it can induce fear. It it can induce a sense of, of panic or dread. But we need to remember the death of Christ in our place and the resurrection of Christ in our place because that alone is what is going to cast out the fear of death. Death is undefeated other than Christ. And and death will come to you, and it has come to Christ, but he conquered it. He, He was laid into a tomb, but he was raised from the dead. And so we can sing songs like when we sing in Christ alone. We can sing songs like, No guilt in life, no fear in death. This is the power of Christ in me. From life's first cry to final breath, Jesus commands my destiny. And we can have hope on the other side of death, not, hear this, not because of the things we do. The work to save us, to get us good standing with God, was finished when Jesus died. It wasn't partially done, and now you have to do some more things to fill out the work that Jesus did. That you have to kind of do some more good works. You have to clean up your life some more to get him to forgive you, to get him to give you eternal life. Jesus did all the work. And he finished it. He didn't leave a little bit left. And then he finished it. And all he calls you to do is to receive the blessing of what he already did. To, to turn from your sin and say, I trust in you, Christ, that you died for my sins. That every drop that should be drank by me was drank by you. I believe that and I trust that and I believe you were raised from the dead and that you will share that with me as well. Your good standing with God, you'll share it with me. Like, please forgive me. Please receive me. And if you come to him with that heart, with that heart of faith and belief and trust, he will forgive you because the work is finished and it will be applied to you by the Holy Spirit. You will be forgiven. You will be made into a new person. You will be promised and guaranteed that on the other side of death now you will receive eternal life. It is not your work to do. Christ did the work. I want to end with this, and then we'll uh, have a closing song. This last quote from this book, Remember Death, that stuck with me. Uh, This quote said that, If death tells us we're not too important to die, the gospel tells us that we're so important that Christ died for us. And so we need to be people who do not forget death. We pretend it's not there. We need to be people who know death is coming. And we're not too important to die, no one in this room. But we can have hope on the other side of death, of being forgiven, of being raised to eternal life because the obedience of Jesus was complete. And the suffering of Jesus for our sins 
is complete. And now he has received the reward from God the Father that he is willing and glad to share with us. Amen? Amen.